Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Bill Alcoholic. Bill Alcoholic. I wonder how long the tweakers can keep that up. It's really a treat to be here. I'd like to thank uh, Mike Kay and and my host, Ed. Where's Ed? Where's Ed? Where'd Ed go? He's been taking real good care of us, and uh, we just had a real wonderful time. Um, Who's that bald guy up there? (laughs) He won't look at me. (laughs) Could do that for a long time, too, man. I'd like to say hi to Bill. Hey, Bill. That's a really nice picture. I don't know that I've seen that picture. And Bob. Who knew that that haircut would come back? (laughs) Really? I mean, really. Who knew? The man was really ahead of his time, wasn't he? Great haircut. That's the Akron special. Oh. I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy. And uh, I never went to the beach. <laughs> My motorcycle rarely ran. And I was afraid to fight. But I looked really good. I looked good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and black greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I've got tattoos all over me. But I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. (laughs) That's my story. The only people that laugh at that are the other phonies. <laughs> they don't get this down at the Rotary Club. You know, they don't, it's not funny there. I've, I've tried it. <laughs> you know. I'd also like to welcome the people that are up in their rooms watching me on Channel 28 naked. I'd like to say to you, if you're watching an AA speaker naked, you're in deep trouble. There's something wrong with your life. Uh, uh, Probably need some therapy. 
I, uh, that is my story. I'm one of those people that when I started drinking, everything stopped. I mean, my life just stopped. Nothing really much happened. Now, I'm a child of the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1965. And uh, it was a great time to be getting loaded. Matter of fact, we weren't getting loaded. We were making a political statement, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, these were issues. There were issues, important issues. I'm certain of it. And, uh, you know, the road from Los Angeles to San Francisco was the road to Nirvana. And Golden Gate Park was the center of the universe. They weren't eating hitchhikers yet, so it was safe to travel, you know. And the young ladies were discovering their sexuality, and we were helping them as best we could, you know. I, you have to stop and think about this. I mean, some groups get this and some don't, but they were actually burning their bras. Remember that? Remember that? Now you tell me there's no God. I mean, that was all we could come up with was draft cards. You know? I've told a lot of stories about the 60s over the years, a lot of stories. And, and, you know, like they say, if you really remembered it, you probably weren't there. But, you know, I, I've had to stop telling the stories because I'm really, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure exactly what happened. I'm pretty sure I did not live with Joan Baez. But I said I did for years. Um, by the time I was 17 years old, I was a bad drunk in high school. I was in trouble. I had the attitude. I had the slouch. I had the big jacket. I had the foul mouth. I was irretrievable at 17 years old. And by the time I was 22, I was in Oregon State Mental Institution. I needed a rest, you know. <laughs> my mother took me to my first psychiatrist when I was 13 years old. And it was because I, I didn't have anger. I don't think alcoholics know much about anger. Anger is an appropriate emotional response to a negative situation. I had rage. And you can get off on rage. You can use rage better than, um, well, you can, it's better than a lot of drugs. I mean, you can go away on rage. I mean, a lot of us get sober and we fall into rage. All of that stuff comes up and we just go into rage. And I had rage. I had double over, fall on the floor, bile in the throat, veins throbbing, eyes bugging, fist into the wall, head into the wall. I was just pissed at the injustice of it all. It was just horrible, you know. And my mother looked at that and said, there's something wrong with the boy. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just not that bad, you know? And isn't that true about us? You know, something normally incorrect occurs, and then our response to that normal incorrectness suddenly, for some odd reason, becomes the issue. You know, somebody steps on my foot and I shoot them, and people talk about overreaction and stuff, you know? And, and I spent a year and a half with this therapist, and he helped me. The guy really helped me. I enjoyed it. And he, he introduced me to my favorite subject, me. <laughs> that lifelong pursuit of self. Do you notice how it never ends? You know, it's, that's one of the nice things about it. 
you can do it forever. It just goes on forever. And, uh, and I started my career path of looking for myself at 13 years old. And uh, remember the party? Remember the whole idea was to have a party. Wasn't that the idea? I mean, the whole idea behind drinking was to have some fun. The whole idea was to get out of the house and go have an adventure. Meet her, get lucky, go to the party. I don't know about you, but I ended up naked in my living room watching religious television, taking notes. I mean, I'm having sex menage a uno. Party! We're partying with Billy now. It's, it's going to get real interesting. So at 17, I'm in the bad drunk. At 22, I'm in the mental institution. Short party. Short party. I mean, you don't need any other explanation, any other description that alcoholism is physiological other than that last three to five years that you and I stayed out there. Nobody would consciously do that to themselves. I mean, what the hell are we thinking? The answer is we're not. You know, seriously, we're not. We're out of control. I mean, in, in the end, isn't it just maintenance? It's just getting through the day. I mean, in the end, it was me in a gin bottle, and I was just getting through the day, trying to kill the physical pain that I felt. Because there was no more mental and emotional relief. But as a teenager, as that teenage kid, I was in the height of it. I was having fun. I was, in the doctor's opinion, it talks about that the alcoholic life seems like the only normal one. How the hell do we pull that off? You know, what, how, what do you do to actually create a reality around yourself that it's okay to puke on your friends, you know, and hit on the, the neighbor's wife and stuff? I mean, all the real cute, fun stuff that we do, you know, the way we treat our, our family and our relatives and the people that love us and, you know, that, that look in their eye. How many times, you know, I mean, I have these visions, I have these memories of standing in front of somebody I have no idea what it was I said, but I can see their face change. And I've said this really cute thing, and they just turn away in disgust, and I watch their face change. How does it become okay? Well, the first thing you got to do is hate your parents. It's a requirement for being an alcoholic, <laughs> right? Because it has to be someone else's fault. It must be someone else's fault. I cannot take responsibility for my own behavior. If I do, I, can, I can't justify it, and I have to stop living that way. So it's got to be your fault. And my first persona was the rebel. I, I wore alcoholism and drug addiction like a suit of armor. I tattooed it on myself. I had the uniform. I walked around. I was the rebel. I was anti-establishment, you know. And I was marching for something. I'm not exactly sure exactly what it was. But I was out there marching, you know, and that was my first persona. That's the first thing that I did. Was I was an angry young youth. I was profoundly neurotic and tortured, and I was abused as a child. That's what it is. I was abused as a child, you know. And then isn't it weird when you get sober and you got to go make amends to them and you start making the list, and you know it's got to be longer than that. 
Isn't, I mean, he did something that's worse than, you know. It was awful, wasn't it, when I was a kid? it Wasn't it awful? And I think I was just awful. I got sober in March of 85, but my journey... My journey in Alcoholics Anonymous really started in March of 1954. Um, I was six years old, and my dad got fired from a job. And uh, rather than go to the bar, he came home, which was pretty odd. And uh, I'm pretty sure that it was my mother that called Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, he went to a meeting in Inglewood, California on Western. On, and uh, He came back from that meeting and he told my mother, he says, you know, those people have got something down there and I'm going to go back and find out what it is. So the following night, she went with him in order to monitor the experience. <laughs> Make sure he signed the entrance form correctly and talked to the right people and paid the dues. And... Uh, they walked into this room, this little Alano club in Inglewood, and uh, another woman saw my mother there and walked up to her and asked her what she was doing there. So my mother told her, and that woman took my mother into the other room. <laughs> <laughs> when my father died in 1999, he was 45 years sober. When my mother died in 2002, she was 48 years in Al-Anon. <clears throat> and in her box of archives uh, were letters from Lois Wilson. And so I, I grew up. I grew up hanging out with people like Chuck Chamberlain, and you know Clancy was the newcomer, and everybody said he wouldn't make it. And, <laughs> You know, and uh, they, matter of fact, they still say that about him. You know? And uh, um, and I grew up in one of those houses. I would come home from school, and there would be guys laying on the back porch waiting for their sponsor to come home. And sometimes they were drunk, sometimes they were sober, and I'd get them up and bring them in the house. I came home one day, and there was a woman hiding in the garage. That was the Al-Anon. <laughs> I'm, this is the truth. This is the truth. Don't make Al-Anon jokes if you don't know what it is. But if you know what it is, you can make some great Al-Anon jokes. <laughs> but, you know, don't throw rocks at them. Laugh with them because God knows they're laughing at us. You ever heard the term alcoholic thinking? Yeah. You only hear that in AA meetings. <laughs> um, I don't believe there's any such thing as alcoholic thinking. I think we're just immature. Uh, Dr. Silkworth agreed with that. Tebow agreed with that. Matter of fact, Silkworth wrote a really great treatise on the idea that we would actually come up with a unique thing called alcoholic thinking in order to avoid looking at ourselves. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I brought that up. 
Evidently, I needed to hear that. You know? <laughs> I don't recommend growing up in an AA household uh, at all. There's nothing worse than living in a house with two people with clear eyes that know exactly what's going on in your head. <sighs> I mean, you're going around the corner to smoke one, and they're waiting for you going, where are you going? You know, because they've been around the corner. They know. And uh, I got out of there as quickly as I could. My parents were two of the most boring, ignorant people I'd ever met in my life. It was incredible, you know. I was much more fun hanging out at the active alcoholics house down the street, you know what I mean? I mean, there was action there. <laughs> Shit was flying around, you know. It's like, you were on your toes. And, uh, there was always a party. In my house, it was just boring and straight and barbecues and potlucks and, you know, all these smiley people. But we had a guy that became like a member of our family. His name was Harold. And uh, uh, he was like Uncle Harold. I mean, there were a couple of those guys, but I remember this guy in particular. And Harold was one of these guys that was always on the back porch. And he was usually always drunk. And he just couldn't. My dad would give him jobs around the house, put money in his pocket, and drive him to meetings and give him clothes and stuff like that, you know. And, uh, and finally, Harold got sober. And uh, I remember one time getting him up. He was laying on the porch, and I come home, and I, I must have been 10 years old, 11 years old, something like that. And I went up, and I started lecturing him. I said, you know, you're not supposed to drink, man. You know, can you imagine? That's called hell. You know, you're laying there. What's this? You know? <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> you're not supposed to drink. I would imagine he'd heard that before, you know. And uh, so, so uh, he find he gets sober, and uh, pretty soon he's coming over to the house. He's got a car, he's got a job, his clothes are clean, you know, and they're going to meetings and stuff. And then he meets this woman in AA. They fall in love, and and I went to the wedding when he got married. And uh, sometime later, he started drinking again, and uh, and he got divorced, and. Then I went to the funeral after he burned himself up alive in a hotel room, smoking, drunk. And I was probably 13 years old at the time, and I knew that the reason that man died is because he drank. I, I was real clear on that. You know, I mean, you, one of the things about growing up in an AA household, you get a pretty good idea of what alcoholism is. You, you may not grasp the physiological aspect of it and it's a disease and stuff but you know damn good and well that it's not good to do that people get hurt and people die and and you see these other smiley people coming over and you know that what these people are doing in your backyard is a good thing they're plotting and planning and starting meetings and doing things and and positive stuff is happening I remember talking to other kids about, you know, that my dad was sober and stuff, you know. And one of the things I did in therapy is I'd, I'd, I'd talk about the fact that my parents were in AA. And I, and I can remember as much as I disliked my parents, as much as I really, I profoundly hated my father, I would talk about his AA life with a certain pride, that that was a good thing that my dad was doing. It was a good thing. He was an asshole generally, but he had this good thing that he would do, you know. And... Uh, 
So at 17, I'm this bad drunk. I meet a girl in 1965 when the Hells Angels rode into the valley at Bass Lake up above Fresno. Um, one of our favorite authors who just recently blew his head off wrote a book about it, and, uh, and I happened to be there. I was there when all that came down. And, uh, um, and I met this woman, and we went up to Oregon to grow our own. And uh, <laughs> we had a couple of kids. And at 22, I'm in the mental hospital, and I'm sticking needles in my arm every day, and I'm drinking like a fish, and I lost a job and, and several jobs and a couple of cars. I lost a house, and I was not coming home to that family at all. I wasn't taking care. We were on welfare, and, uh, uh, and I lost that family and those children to divorce. And I'm in a mental institution. I'm in a mental institution. And the, the way you, when you end up in a mental institution, it's not because you had a bad week. You know, you have to build up a certain level of toxicity to end up in the mental institution, you know. I mean, I was running with an outlaw motorcycle gang, and I'm shooting speed, and I was strung out. I'm having black and white hallucinations and drinking like a fish, and things were not going well for Billy. Anybody else here been in a mental institution? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to ask that question again. And I'm going to give a little, if they lock the door behind you, it's a mental institution. That's better. There's always a bunch of people out there thinking, well, they were just observing me. It really wasn't a mental institution, you know. I was only there for a week. Well, only those of us that have been in a mental institution know that it's not that bad. You have some sparkling conversations in the mental institution. <laughs> I mean, it is an eclectic crowd. Yeah. It's a great place to look for a bride. I'd like to introduce you to my wife, Karen. Stand up, honey. She requires me to tell you that I did not find her in the mental institution, <laughs> unless you count AA, you know. When I was in the mental institution, probably 68, 69, something like that, and I don't remember anybody talking to me in there about recovery. I don't remember anybody talking to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't remember anybody talking to me about abstinence or a 12-step program of any kind. Now, they may very well have talked to me about that, and I just don't recall it. I had the wonderful experience a few years ago to actually speak at a convention in that town of Salem, Oregon. And this is how AA works. I went there, and I was going to revisit this place. Now, I, I joke about it a lot, but it wasn't a real happy time in my life. The reason that we laugh about these things is because it's not like that anymore. But when it's like that, it's not cute. I mean, it's not, people were coming to visit me to think, see if I was okay in the mental I didn't want visitors in the mental institution. <laughs> this is not a high point for a badass biker like me, you know. It's like... <clears throat> and I was in there a couple of times, too. And, uh, uh, but I went up there and I had every intention of visiting the place. 
And I got there early that day on a Friday, and I drove around, and I had, it's right next to the penitentiary so that you can see where you're going, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I tried find I couldn't find it, and time was running out, and they had a little banquet like they had here for the speakers and stuff. And I'm sitting next to this guy that's about my age. He's a local guy there, and he's one of the, happens to be one of the speakers, long ponytail hippie guy, you know, and I love ponytail hippie guys. And, and uh, I'm talking to him, and I said, you know, I was in the mental institution here. And he looked at me and smiled, and he goes, I work there. <laughs> and I said, of course you do. And he goes, absolutely. He says, would you like to go there? I said, yes. So he called off security and said, I'm going to be leading this weirdo around Sunday afternoon. And I got my picture taken next to the sign, found the ward I was in. It's like my alma mater, you know. It's like, it's like some people went to Harvard. And I went to the Oregon State Mental Institution. And, uh, and uh, so I get out of the mental institution, and it was time to go home. This state of Oregon determined that they didn't want me any longer and nobody else that I knew there cared to have me there. And I came home and I went back down to Los Angeles and when you hate your parents, you can still ask them for stuff when you need it. <laughs> don't ever forget that. This is, you know, uh, don't be too proud. You know? And uh, so I needed something. So my dad let me sleep in his garage and he gave me a job in his little machine shop in El Segundo. And I tried to get normal. And what normal is for an alcoholic of my variety is that you pretty much got to quit doing heroin because you can't find anybody to go along with the concept of social heroin use. <laughs> it's pretty much a lifestyle, you know. And uh, you got to stop taking acid because you got to talk to people. I mean, regular people, I've noticed this, they have conversations where one person stop, talks and then they stop and then the other person talks and then he stops and then that person, you ever, you ever watched them do that? It's, it's called interchange or something and, and uh, I don't do that very well. And so you got to quit taking acid. So what you do is you, you just drink on the weekends and the reason you can only drink on the weekends is normal people have jobs and they go to them, those jobs on Monday. And then they follow that up with Tuesday. I've seen it. I've seen it. Then they do, they do Wednesday, Thursday, and they do this week after week. It's incredible. It's depressing, but it's incredible. And when I drink, I don't show up no matter what. Literally, everything stops. I accomplish nothing. I go nowhere. I have nothing. Everything stops. And, uh, and I end up alone in a room somewhere almost every time. And, and I'm a social guy. I love people. I love being around people. I derive my energy from people. I tried this experiment for 15 years, and as you can imagine, it failed miserably. Um, by the time I was 37 years old, all the hip dope was gone. There was no more hip dope. Uh, there was me and a gin bottle. That was it. Um, one of the things that happened, I think, that kind of kicked me over the traces is I started sticking needles again. I started using needles again, and I, and I thought I would never do that again. And, uh, uh, but I, I wasn't hooked or anything like that. I was just drunk. 
And it was in the room, you know what I mean? It's just, you ever notice that? I mean, it's, it's, you just end up places, you know, you just, you end up places that you have no intention of being. I never intended to be many places I ended up with people that I ended up with. And uh, in the end, I had married again. I found another woman. I had two more children because an alcoholic of my variety, you can never, ever, ever be alone. I need someone to take care of me. It, it's a group effort getting me through life. <laughs> it takes a village. You know? You know, it's like, and people have a tendency to stray, and you got to gather them up, you know, get them back, get them refocused, you know, on the plan here. We got a plan. We're, we're going somewhere, you know. And, uh, and there's lots of volunteers out there for that. There's lots of volunteers, people that will step up and take responsibility for me. And, uh, and I found one of these women, and we had we set up housekeeping again. I had two more children, and at 37 years old, I lived in the house with those people, with those children, and with that wife. And I had no emotional connection to another living human being, none. And the worst thing about that is I did not know that. I had no clue. The eye can't see itself. I can't stand outside my own experience and look at it and compare it to anything else. I figure that everybody feels the same way I do. The thief thinks everyone else is a thief. I had no idea that I was that dead inside. There's a great line written by a non-alcoholic in the doctor's opinion. It says, we lose touch with all things human. Isn't that true? There's no room for you in my life. I cannot feel you in my life. I do not feel what you feel. The only time how you feel affects me in any way is when how you feel affects me somehow. <laughs> but I do not relate to how you feel. It's when you're mad and I need you to not be mad at me. And then all of a sudden I'm concerned with your life situation. But beyond that, nothing. Guys come to me today and they say, I love my children. I look at them and go, do you really? Don't you think they're in a way just a little bit? Because you were in my way. You, Everybody was in my way. You were a hindrance. You were a speed bump in my life, you know. And at 37, I had no connection. There was nothing left in me anymore, and I didn't know it. But once again, I was drunk from the neck down. There was no more mental and emotional relief. There was nowhere left. You know what that is? That's hell. That's hell. When the medication doesn't work anymore. When I can't get any relief. You ever drank yourself clear? Now that was never the idea, was it? You know, you know what the problem with moderation management is? You ever heard of moderation management? The woman that started it killed some people on the freeway here a few years ago. You know, the problem with moderation management is, is that I don't know any of my brothers and sisters in Alcoholics Anonymous that ever wanted to moderate a goddamn thing. <laughs> moderation was never the goal. I never had the desire, ever had the desire to sit out on the veranda and have a couple of beers and watch the sun go down. That was never the, the only time that idea came to me is after I got sober and I'm looking for a way to go drink. 
But when I was drinking, I never wanted to sit out on the strand wall and smoke a joint and watch the sun go down. I wanted to lay down behind the wall and be shit-faced, you know? I want to get off. I'm drinking for the blackout. I want to go away. I don't like this reality. I did not create it. And I want to go somewhere else. Thank you very much. And when that stops happening, I'm in a squirrel cage. I'm in trouble now. So I went home this one particular night and I called my mom. No one loves you like your mother. <laughs> Hopefully. And, uh, my mother came and got me. And she drove me silently, before I changed my mind, to a place in Costa Mesa called Starting Point and checked me in there. I should go back a little bit. I went to my first shrink when I was 13, spent a couple of times in a mental institution. I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. I've been to several other psychiatrists for one reason or another. I've been observed. Uh, <laughs> I've been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. I know more about myself than is safe to know. But it is my favorite subject. While I was in this recovery place for 35 days, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. We made it in crafts. a little rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went around it and I had to wear it and pour everybody coffee and what it said on the sign is, I am not a counselor. Because <laughs> evidently there was some confusion about that. Uh, so I spent 35 days in there. It was a pretty straight-ahead place. You know, they worked you up through a fifth step and had some counseling and stuff, but it was pretty straight-ahead. It was all big book-oriented stuff and, uh, you know, meditation and prayer and all that stupid stuff they make you do, you know. <clears throat> and uh, while I was in that thing, they'd let us out every once in a while to go to the drugstore or something to get toothpaste, and I was afraid to leave. I just knew that, you know, I'd be walking around outside and a beer truck would drive by and a can would fall off and jump into my mouth or something. <laughs> I don't know what the hell we're afraid of, you know. It's like, <clears throat> but I just knew. I mean, I knew. Didn't you know? Didn't you know you were going to get drunk again? Didn't you know? I mean, it's like we all sit around, every one of us sit around, and we think about, you know, I should quit drinking. I should, maybe it's the drinking. But you can't really imagine not drinking. You know, you can't really imagine living life sober without, because the impact of your personality on me is devastating. It's just, it's absolutely devastating. Matter of fact, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is something to be survived. You know, I really, I'm serious. I mean, this is the character defect center of the known universe. I mean, the absolute worst thing we do is relationships, and we do a lot of things poorly, but relationships is right up there in the top one, you know. 
I mean, you know, you'll hit on my wife, you'll borrow money from me and you won't pay me back. I'll give you a job, you'll do a shitty job, and somehow it'll be my fault. I mean, that's my personal favorite. How you pull that off is beyond me. You know? And then the coup de grace is, is that you won't show up to my birthday party after all I've done for you. You know? I mean, you know. So I, I couldn't imagine living life just without some cushion. You know, and, and I was afraid to leave that place. And I got out and I started going to AA. What an experience. You know, I mean, what an experience. Alcoholics Anonymous, what an experience. I remember standing in the back of the room. It was Friday night at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club. And there was this meeting called the Gong Show. <laughs> A lot of people said that it really wasn't an AA meeting. It was some hermaphroditic kind of thing. <laughs> Some aberration of an AA meeting, but there was a lot of laughter and stuff. And I remember you walking up to the podium, taking your dumbass little chips and saying, I'd like to thank God and my sponsor for my sobriety, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and then the coup de grace at the end was, happy birthday to you. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at my shoes and I'm thinking, I can't do this. This is too stupid. You know, I can't. And, and I'm cursed with the disease that a lot of us have. I'm too hip for AA. This is a, you know. Now, you got to picture this. I'm fat, bald, and 40, and I think I'm too hip for AA. Now, we talk around here a lot about denial. That is not denial. This is delusional. <laughs> to be in denial, you actually have to know some shit. <laughs> you know? And I've, I've got the delusion problem now. <clears throat> now, at this point in my sobriety, I think one of the saddest things that you see around here is somebody trying to be cool in, of all places, AA. <laughs> You know, this has offered me a level of lameness that I did not know was available. You know? It's just, it's beyond belief. And in order for AA to work for you, for me, for anybody, you got to lame up. You know, you just have to go along with the lameness, you know. And, uh... That's a barrier for a lot of folks, you know. <clears throat> but I knew I had to get a sponsor thing. You know, you, you really need a sponsor thing. And in the hospital, they tell you that, that you got to have one. And uh, so I walked up and I asked this guy, I said, will you be my sponsor? He says, be at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club Monday at 8 o'clock. The meeting starts at 8.30. Be there at 8 o'clock Monday night and we'll discuss it. Now I thought what he was going to do is that he was going to ask me a series of questions about myself so that he could get a feel for my case. So that he could adjust himself accordingly <laughs> to approach me in such a fashion 
to make this transition into sobriety a little easier for me. <laughs> because the psychotherapeutic community is always interested in how I felt and what I thought about how I felt. <laughs> now, that was my life experience. And I was actually looking forward to this because, you see, I have no trouble telling you all my secrets. I have no trouble with that at all. I really don't. Matter of fact, if the conversation lulls, I'll just make some shit up. <laughs> you know? I mean, and I, you know, we'll just to keep the ball rolling, you know? I mean, in the hospital, I used to tell people, I used to help them do their inventory. I swear this is true. I said, you know, I say, put some homosexual stuff in there. I mean, it makes them think you're telling the truth, you know? And it's probably true, you just don't remember. Well, I woke up with a couple of guys, but it wasn't anything serious, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it's just kind of what happens sometimes, you know. Have I gone too far? See, is anybody leaving? Share in a general way. Um, Well, we seem to be getting close. <laughs> you know, uh... So anyway, I show up to the Alano Club, and this guy takes me around the corner, and he asks me a couple of questions. One of them is, are you willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol? Very lame. And uh, <laughs> it's like, like, what's he expecting to say? No, I'd like to lose, thank you. No. <laughs> How about, like, just win a couple of battles and not total victory? No. And I say, yeah, sure, I'm willing to go to any length, man. You and me, bro, off hand in hand into the sunset. <laughs> hoo Victory, you know? Yeah. That's what I'm looking for, victory. And, uh, and the second question was more of a statement than a question. He says, I noticed that when you identify yourself, that you call yourself an alcoholic and an addict. And I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of drugs and they taught me how to do that in the hospital, so what? And he looks at me and he says, well, if you're calling yourself an addict because you think it's a little hipper, slicker, and cooler, you might want to drop it and be like everybody else for the first time in your life. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember standing there looking at the guy it's in the dark, and he's a short little. <laughs> and he's 10 years younger than me, and he's got a full head of hair, all of which pisses me off. You know? <clears throat> and I'm looking down at him, and standing in front of me was the boy's vice principal, my father, every cop that I've ever yelled at, you know, because I had a bit of a problem with authority, you know? And you ever heard people say that in AA when they're up at podiums like it's a badge of honor? I'm here to tell you that's a character defect. When you're 14 or 15, it's kind of appropriate. When you're 40, it's just stupid, you know? But that night, I'm standing there looking at this guy, and I could feel the rage. I could feel it coming up in the veins throbbing in my neck. 
And what was going on, what, I, what was going on in my head was, who the hell do you think you are to talk to me like that? Because he embarrassed me. And it, it shocked me. It surprised me. And what came out of my mouth was, okay. <laughs> when you're fat, bald, and 40, and you're in your old man's club, there's no debate. There is no debate. There are no referrals from Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the last house on the street. There's nowhere else to go, ladies and gentlemen. For the rest of our natural lives, it's linoleum floors and metal folding chairs. Party! Yeah. This is it. I did not make this up. I need you. You don't need me. There's many more standing behind me waiting to come in here. You don't need me. I need you. I have to figure out some way to make this work. I've got to somehow, I've got to get underneath all the personalities to where there are some principles or something that I can grab a hold of that is going to help me survive this thing to get to the other side of it. You can bet if I'm going to change, I'm going to be uncomfortable. I don't change when I'm not uncomfortable. When I'm on familiar ground in a familiar place where I'm in control and I'm in charge, no change occurs. This guy is offering me his life, isn't he? When we walk up to these people and we ask them, we tell them, I want what you have, will you help me? What is it we want from them? Isn't what we want is their lives? I mean, I want your life. And I can only equate it in things like Mercedes, house, and stuff like that. But deep down inside, there's something more, isn't there? Isn't there something more that I'm looking for? And how am I ever going to get there if I control this experience? If somebody says something negative to me and I don't like it and I just leave and go somewhere else, where am I going to find a place to get comfortable at? The bar? Probably. There's no comfortable place in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not comfortable here. Not when we're new. It's never comfortable. And as far as I'm concerned, there's some misconceptions around here that are really dangerous. One of them is that this is a selfish program. No, it's not. We made that up so we'll feel better about being here. You know? It is the antithesis of a selfish program. It's about me finally getting out of myself and into you. It has very little to do with me. The same alcoholic that made that up came up with, there's a different program for everyone in AA. No, there's not. I mean, I think there should be a special program for Billy. And I've created several of those over the years. But there's only one program, and it's real clear as to what it is. Matter of fact, it says one of the great lines in the book is that we have a way out upon which we can all agree. We all agree on this. It's what allows us to sit in the room together, black, white, you know, everything, gay, straight, everything. We all can sit in the room together, all ethnicities, sexual persuasions, because we have a way out upon which we can all agree. And we don't talk about anything else other than that way out. 
Now, if you want to think that there's a special program for you and you can go and you can create it, you need another phrase that is even more deadly than that one, but it's attached to it. It's take what you can use and leave the rest. Doesn't that just sound wrong? Isn't that how you and I have lived our lives all of our lives? Isn't that what we've always done? Take what's easy, take what's convenient, take what's handy, take what belongs to you, you know, and just leave whatever's inconvenient, whatever makes me uncomfortable, whatever I don't like, whatever doesn't look right, whatever smells wrong, whatever it might be, whatever's too hard to get, whatever makes me uncomfortable, just leave it. I think it's time for me to finally step up to the plate and realize that my problem is, is that I'm emotionally immature. I don't have alcoholic thinking. I have emotionally immature thinking. I'm like a little child, and when I started drinking when I was 14 or 15 years old, I stopped growing emotionally. And now I'm 37, 38 years old, and on a good day, I'm going to have the emotional development of a 16-year-old, and this 16-year-old is not your honor student. <laughs> this is the one with the bit of a problem with authority. You know? And if you let this 16-year-old take what he wants and leave the rest, he'll leave the room. It's uncomfortable for me here. I'll just go. Thank you very much. You've been your own worst enemy. Put yourself at the top of the amends list. Just blow your head off. You know, make it quick. Save us the pain of watching you flop around like a boated fish. Isn't the way it works is you put yourself at the bottom of the list and by the time you get there, you have some self-esteem? Isn't that how AA works? I think so. You've got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. <laughs> I always have loved Billy. Now, maybe I was a little self-destructive, but it was all behind making Billy feel good all the time. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I should never, ever feel bad. When I feel bad, there's something inherently incorrect. It needs to be remedied immediately. You know, this I take as self-love. Let's make Billy feel good. I think the way AA works is, is I pretend that I love you. And that in that process, I'll start feeling better about myself because of those acts. And I'll begin to like what I see in the mirror. The day will come where I'll raise my head up from the sink and I'll look at that guy in the mirror and it won't be hard. I won't have to avert my gaze because I'm beginning to live a decent life. We're not bad people getting good. We're sick people getting well. Isn't part, <laughs> isn't part of the sick people getting well, bad people getting good? Isn't that kind of the pathway? It's like when the guy comes to you and he says, I think I'll rob a liquor store. And you say to him, no, 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 that's bad. You know, don't rob the liquor store, get a job. You know? <laughs> you know? 
And the guy looks at you, he goes, right. <laughs> uh, okay, you know. I think I'll marry the nude dancer down at the Wild Goose. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but that probably is going to be a short-term relationship, you know. <laughs> but I think part of the pathway for us getting well is to start performing decent acts. I mean, that's how you build self-esteem. None of us gets to Alcoholics Anonymous feeling very good about ourselves. The last thing we want to do is continue breaking that down. I think the sponsor, what he does, what this guy did for me, is he said, be at my house Thursday at 5 o'clock, read the doctor's opinion, make notes in the margin of what you agree with and what you don't, and we'll discuss it. So I went home and I read my assignment. And I made my notes in the margin, and I showed up at his house, and he did not trust me that I'd read it, so he had me sit there and read it to him out loud. <laughs> Rule number one, sponsoring people, make sure they read the book. You know, Rule one, make sure they read the book. You know? And I sat there. I read a page, and he read a page, and I read a page, and he read a page, and I, I, you know, I had no self-esteem, but I had opinions, so I had written some stuff down, you know, and, uh, and I discussed it with him. Now, in the doctor's opinion, it describes four or five different kinds of alcoholics. He asked me which one I was, and I, we discussed it, and I said, well, I think I'm this one here. He says, well, circle it. Put a star next to it. You're in the book. <laughs> I kind of like that. And he explained to me, he says, this book is written about you. It's not written to you. It's written about you. And you should find yourself in there. And if you don't, there's a problem. But you say you found yourself. You're on the path. You're on the way. Here we go. Now, he explained to me that the only thing that's going to save an alcoholic of that variety, as it says in the doctor's opinion, is a complete psychic change. We determined that I needed one of those that my perception of the world around me should never, ever be confused with reality. <laughs> Alan Watts said that, great alcoholic. And he says, his job as my sponsor is to help bring about that psychic change by guiding me through the process of the 12 steps that will bring about this psychic change that will make me feel comfortable within myself so that maybe I won't have to drink anymore. And what I've just described to you in my own humble opinion, which is a very good one, <laughs> is sponsorship. That is sponsorship. He did the steps with me. He didn't say to me, and I didn't know that there was sponsor light. I didn't know that you could walk up to a guy and say, will you be my sponsor? And he says, well, yeah, go ahead, read the book. If you run into some trouble, give me a call. You know, now, I'm not exactly sure what that is could be a buddy or a friend or something like that, but it isn't sponsorship as I understand it, as it was brought to me. Now, one of the things that he did for me and one of the things that he continued to explain to me that his job as my sponsor, he said, I'd be happy to talk to you about what you think your problems are so that you will not share about them in the meetings. <laughs> really? He said, the, the meetings... <laughs> The meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how your day went. Now, I didn't know. I didn't know any different. I just believed him. I did not know that I had fallen into the right-wing death squad faction of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. 
that they're a little to the right of Noriega. You know, it's like, they do not believe that this is a program of suggestions. They think that they put suggestions in there to lull us into this feeling of confidence so we won't just run screaming down the street, you know. And so this process started for me. Here's what I you heard a very good description of the steps by our first speaker tonight. But what happened for me, and here's what I believe today. 20% of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is doing an inventory and making amends. 20%. It's sober 101. 80% of the program, 80% is working with others. 80% of it is working with others. There's two paragraphs in the book that are written to address character defects. There's a lot more than that written in the 12 and 12, and it's a deep subject that we could talk about a lot. But here's how I believe that God guides my life and how he addresses my character defects. He sends me you. <laughs> if you want to work on your character defects, sponsor people. You'll run into every one of them. If you, I, I was raised by two rules in AA. One, you always answer the phone. Never monitor your phone calls. Get rid of caller ID. Just pick up the phone. If you want your life to be managed and run outside yourself, if you want this power to insert itself into your life and guide you through the process, you will always answer the phone. Just pick it up. There's nobody to hide from. And I have no idea why you need me or what I might need on the other. And it's how God gets a hold of us. It's the modern age, you know. <laughs> Number two, you never, ever, ever, ever say no. You always say yes. There is never a good reason to say no. The most spiritual thing said in Alcoholics Anonymous is get in the car. Well, where are we going? Get in the car. Well, who's going with us? Get in the car. What's on your social program? <laughs> your agenda. Especially when we're new, right? Get in the car. Just get in the car. I'm 20 years sober now. And I'm still getting in the car. You know, I mean, I've learned how to avoid certain things, you know. But I get in the car. Now, what my sponsor raised me to do is to start working with others as quickly as possible. Now, a few things will happen if you start doing this. If you have any kind of prejudice at all, any prejudice at all, you can bet it will walk across the room and ask you for help. I used to stand up at these podiums and I'd say, if you're on medication, if you're depressed or something like that, some bullshit thing like that, and you're on medication, that you're not sober. You know why I said that? Because I heard some of you say that. And I wanted to be a right-wing, badass, death squad, AA dude, you know, <laughs> and, and be correct, sober correctly, as compared to all the incorrect people, you know. And I had, that's the old biker in me, you know, it's the old, you, know, you get sober around here, not much changes. I have the same character, the same personality I had before, 
and it thinks a little clearer now, you know. I'm more correct than I used to be, and I mean, you know, it's like, and I have opinions, have you noticed? And I have, you know, I have a bit of an ego problem. Some people might even say that I'm arrogant. I don't know where that comes from, but, you know, I've had this said to me before in a confrontational way. And, uh, and so I've got all this stuff going on. So I'd stand up here and I'd say, you know, you're not sober if you're on medication. So this guy comes across the room and he says, will you be my sponsor? But I need to tell you that I'm bipolar and I'm on medication. I went, oh, geez, one of these losers, you know. And I told him, I said, well, we'll talk about that later, you know. Now, if you don't want to lose your prejudices, if you don't want to lose them, send him away. Don't confront it. Stay correct. And nothing will change in your life. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I am the instrument of God's will. I am how God works in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's me and you. We are how he works. And there's a two-way street here that happens. The person asking for help hopefully receives it. And the person giving the help gets helped. And these character defects will be addressed in such stark living color that you will not be able to deny it. And guaranteed, it will be uncomfortable. You won't like looking at it. Prejudice is an ugly thing to see. Admitting that we're wrong is very hard to do. We give it a lot of lip service around here, but there isn't a whole lot of it that's really happening very often. So this guy said to me, will you help me? And I, and I can't say no. I've been taught to not say no, that I have no idea what God has in store for me, that I need to allow Him to manage my life because my life is unmanageable by me, which is a good thing if I've got another manager. So I start reading the book with this guy, and I have the experience of entering into his life because you invite me into your life many times when I don't want to go. You know, I'm serious. It's scary in there. This is called intimacy. We don't do intimacy ever. You know, we talk about it. We don't do it. Matter of fact, there's the illusion of intimacy in Alcoholics Anonymous because we talk about heavy shit. But that isn't intimacy. It's just talking about heavy shit. You know, but I'm not really part of your life. I'm not really in your life. I'm just talking to you and telling you all my deep, dark secrets. And therefore, there's the illusion that I'm being intimate with you. No, I'm just talking about me some more. You know, that's all it is. You know, but now this guy enters in my life and he's got some problems. And I see the demon in him. I see the demon in his eyes. I can't deny it. I have the experience of peeling him off the ceiling and lifting him up off the floor. One time he came into my living room scared to death and curled up. This is a grown 40-year-old man curled up in my lap and put his head in my shoulder and cried like a baby. And I just held him there. Now when I see him come and I say, Have you taken your medication? <laughs> Because you're sick, you know. <laughs> so I had an opinion. Then I had an experience. And it changed my opinion. That's how it works. That's how it works.
I had a guy that I've sponsored for a long time. He's sober a long time now. And, and years ago, his mother was dying. And uh, she he finally had to take her to the hospital. He had to put her hip back in place and change her diapers and stuff. You know, I mean, it was it was difficult for him. It was difficult to watch. And I had never been part of this. I'd never seen anything like this before. I'd never been a party to anything like this. And I watched this guy do this. And one day, he, when she was in the hospital, he came by my house and he gave the hospital my phone number because he knew he'd be there and if they needed to get a hold of him, they could reach him there. So we're sitting in the kitchen and we're talking and the phone rings and sure enough, it's the hospital and they tell him, you better get down here. I don't think she's going to last much longer. So he got up to leave and he wasn't leaving. And I knew what he wanted and I did not want to go. I didn't want to go with him because I was afraid. It's not my family. It's not my mother. It's not, he's not a relative. You know, this is just some guy I know on AA. And he's standing there. Finally, I said to him, I said, would, do you want me to go with you? And he said, would you please? He has a brother and a sister and a family. But isn't it interesting? They trust us. Something happens. They trust us. They feel closer to us than they do their own families. I feel closer to you, much closer to you, than I do my own family today. I hear the music today. When it was my chip, it wasn't so stupid. When it was my birthday, it was very hip. <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, AA hey, hey, used to be lame. I don't know what happened, you know? <laughs> but I said, okay, and I went with him. And I walked in that room that day. It was an ICU, and she's all hooked up to wires and stuff, and it was horrible. She looked bad. It was death. I'm looking death in the face. And I went and I found a chair, and I sat down in this chair, and he's pacing the room, and a feeling came over me. It just flooded over me that everything's okay, Bill. There's nothing wrong here. This isn't a mistake. Everything's okay. Now, I have no explanation for that. I don't know... The light, the room didn't change colors. It wasn't like that, but it was a very real thing. And I had this guy, Al, come and sit next to me, and I held his hand. He's a carpenter, a great big guy, as big as I am, but he's got these great big carpenter hands. And I'm holding his hand, and he's holding my hand really tight, and I looked at him, and I said, Al, there's nothing wrong here. Everything's okay. Let's pray. And we said this prayer, and while I'm saying the prayer with him, I could feel his grip relax in my hand. That's intimacy. It's very quiet. It's very subtle. And we miss it all the time. We're just too busy. We're too loud. We're not slowing down. We're not paying attention. I miss it all the time. We think intimacy is sex. We're so wrong. We don't have any idea what it is to be heart close to another human being. But in this program, if we allow this thing to sweep us away, we will discover this and it will scare the hell out of us. My father got cancer, the man that I hated. This man that I hated passionately. It was a passion, it was a fire that drove my life. And when he got cancer, I had made amends to him. When I was about a year sober, I went and made amends to him. Ten years later, he made amends to me. When I wasn't looking for it. 
when the relationship became safe, when we were intimate, one with the other. He never hugged me as a child. The last 10 years of his life, he couldn't keep his hands off of me. He was so proud of me. His birthday was March the 28th, March the 27th. Mine is March the 28th. For 14 years, we gave ourselves cakes, gave each other cakes in the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag. It was the Gordon and Bill show, you know. My dad became cool to me in AA. I never saw him telling dirty jokes and hanging out with the guys, man. I never knew that he was funny, you know. And he was funny in Alcoholics Anonymous. When he showed up at my meeting, it pissed me off. I didn't want him in my meeting, you know. But then it became, we had the wonderful AA memorial, you know. But when he was dying, when he was dying, when it was time for him to go, I was there and you had prepared me for this. What if I would have said no to that guy when he wanted me to go to ICU with him and his mother? What if I'd have said no? What if I couldn't do it because I was afraid? Would I have been able to be there for my father? When another friend of mine's son was dying from leukemia and we went to the hospital every day and held hands and prayed over the bed with him, prayed for the poor child to die because he was in such pain. I mean, that was frightening. This kid was the same age as my younger children, and it scared the hell out of me. I didn't want to see that. He looked like a poster child for Dachau. It was horrible, you know. And we helped this guy get through it. We were helping our friend get through it. So when it came time for my father to die, I'd seen the face of death because Alcoholics Anonymous has showed me the face of death, showed me that I could live through it. When it was time to change his diapers, my mother and I were standing by the side of the bed and my mother looked at me and goes, here we go. And, uh, you know, I got to see my parents as lovers. She had seen my dad's ass for 60 years. <laughs> she knew exactly what was under there, you know. <laughs> and she showed me how to do it. And we did it together. We changed his diapers and we kept him clean and we loved him into the other, into the other room. You know, it took about six months. Then my mother got cancer, and she died in the living room of my house, in a hospital bed in the front room of my house. Karen and I moved her in, and I'm standing by the side of her bed one day, and it was time to change her diapers, and there was no one else in the room. There was no one there to help me. It was me and her, and she cried. She started crying because she thought she'd lost her dignity, but she hadn't, had she? She hadn't lost her dignity. You know, but she didn't know that. It was hard for her. She was always a well-kept woman. And I said, well, here we go, Mom. And I jumped in there and I changed her diaper, you know. And uh, One of the things she said to me that day, she looked at me and she says, I never raised you to do this. And I looked at her and I went, oh, yes, you did. I grew up in that AA house. I watched what they did for people. I watched them help people. And even as a young boy, I knew what they were doing was the good thing. And here I am today, a tall, strong man, taking care of my mother, just like I'm supposed to. Just like I'm supposed to. You know the gift that we give our parents when they look at us? As they look at us when we're sober now and they go, the kid's okay. I don't have to worry about the kid anymore. He's okay. He pulled it off. Never thought he'd make it, but he's all right, you know. So I stood there and I changed her diaper. 
Then the next time it wasn't so hard. And what happened between my mother and I is we stepped through a barrier. Another barrier of intimacy. We became closer than we'd ever been before. The third time she yelled at me, she goes, Bill, it's time! <laughs> they did a statistical study not too long ago. Several colleges got together and did this study, and they made the determination that probably 50% of the population of North America has been touched by Alcoholics Anonymous. You take the 230 programs that have spun off from it, all the different 12-step programs, you know, the CA, NA, OA, all the A's, and then all the family group, or Narconon, Coanon, Alanon, all of them together. For every alcoholic, for every one of us, how many people's lives do we touch when we're drinking? God knows. You know, I mean, we heard from our first speaker tonight, you know, how many people get touched, and we don't have any clue how many people we're injuring. The same thing happens when we get sober. For every alcoholic, maybe 10, 15, 20 people, who knows? People that look at us and say that we never change, and then they see us change, it changes them. It changes them. It changes their perception of the world around them. If it's true, this statistical study, just in North America alone, 300 million people. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. That's where you and I are. It has very little to do with us. This is not therapy. It's not a self-help program. It's not a support group. It's much larger than that. It is, by its very nature, a spiritual program. Please don't misunderstand me when I, tell, when I talk about psychotherapy and stuff. Don't sit there and tell people that I'm knocking it. I'm not knocking it. I'm telling you that Alcoholics Anonymous is not that. It's something else much greater than that, I believe. It has touched me in a way that I have a difficult time describing what has happened to me in my life, the way it's turned my life around. I have an intimate relationship with a woman today that I did not think was possible. I never thought when I got sober that I would ever have sex again. I never thought I'd never had sex sober, and I could not imagine having sex sober. I mean, how do you look right at him and make the deal and do the thing, you know? You know? I mean, that was beyond my comprehension, you know? Now we have an argument about whether to have the lights on or off, you know? It's like, I mean, I like to see exactly what's happening, you know? It's like, uh, did I overstep the bounds again? So this is what I think of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I believe it's an, an incredibly significant thing. It has changed the world. It has changed psychotherapy as we understand it. You know, it is the founder of group therapy, of, of people coming in and watching what we're doing. And you look at the books that they write about it, and they try to describe it, and they try to explain it. But it's like trying to describe rock and roll to somebody from Venus, man. You know, it's like you, it's a participatory sports like golf. You know, I mean, you got to be completely screwed and then come in here and watch your life turn around to really understand the depth and the profundity of it. 
I'd like to close with something that's very close to me. Um, this is a poem that was written by Sam Shoemaker. Um, Shoemaker was the minister of Calvary Chapel. Um, when Ebby came to Bill, he came from the Oxford group, and he came specifically from Calvary Chapel in New York. And he had 60 days sober, so it clearly worked. And what the Oxford group did, where Alcoholics Anonymous came from, is they said, you're okay now, go find the worst drunk you know. And that was Bill Wilson. Good old Bill. And Ebby went to Wilson. When Wilson went looking for Ebby afterwards, he went to Calvary Chapel to find him. And in getting sober after that at Towns Hospital, he met Sam Shoemaker. When it was time to write the book, Bill Wilson went to Sam and asked him to write the book. And Sam and his brilliance said, no, Bill, this is your gig. you got to do this. And, uh, and Bill Wilson wrote the book. But Sam helped him, and Sam was a great input. He wrote this poem. Now, this poem is not about specifically AA, but this is the AA that I understand. This is the AA that I know. This is the AA that I experience. If you're sitting out there tonight and you don't feel connected, it's because you're not. <laughs> you know? It's because you're not doing it. Should everybody sponsor people? Absolutely. Don't believe the lie that you can do other things and you don't have to do that. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that you don't have anything to offer. Of course you have something to offer. Don't make yourself smaller than you really are. You ever heard people in AA say, the longer I'm sober, the less I know? Don't you wonder about those people? Aren't they paying attention? I mean, you can sit around the rooms and, and do not a damn thing and pick some shit up, you know? I mean, it's like... Bill Wilson says it takes a message that has depth and weight to touch us. You and I are supposed to have one of those. He says after the ninth step, he says that our next function is to increase in understanding and effectiveness. I don't think that's the longer I'm sober, the less I know. You know, I think we're supposed to be out there saving the next alcoholic, you know. It doesn't do us any good. You can't find peace through avoiding life. You won't get humble by pretending to be humble and hope that it will happen to you. You know, I mean, if I've got an ego problem, I should let it hang out there. It gives God a big target, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine in 20 years have I been crushed a few times? Whoa, you know, it hurts, you know. But it doesn't do me any good to shrink, to be smaller than I am. It doesn't serve any good purpose for that. I'm supposed to know some stuff. When you come and ask me for help, I should give you, be able to give you practical spirituality. Practical spirituality. I've been sober for a while. I should know something about living sober. And if you don't know something, I can convey that information to you. I can take you by the hand and lead you down that street. That's what they did for me. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. 
the most important thing that any man or woman can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they've not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him, so I stand by the door. I admire the people that go way in, but I wish they would not forget how Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.